Well, we are finishing up our study through the book of Malachi this morning. Uh, So if you want to turn to your, if you have a Bible there, if you want to turn to Malachi uh, chapter 4, we are going to read all six verses, but we're going to be looking mainly at verses 5 and 6. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, give ear to the reading of the word of God. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, as I mentioned, we're we're finishing up, Lord willing, our study through the book of Malachi here this morning. Uh, Here in the closing verses of Malachi's prophecy, uh, we see yet another prophecy in this little short book of Malachi, another prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist, even as we saw back in Malachi 3 verse 1. Uh, Back in that previous chapter, the Lord foretold that he would send his messenger. He said, I'm going to send my messenger ahead of me as a forerunner in order to, quote, prepare the way before him. And we know from the Gospels, that's what John the Baptist was sent forth to do. That's much like what is also prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where it says, it tells us of a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. We don't know... uh, Quite sometimes different translations will render that slightly differently. It'll, is, the voice, uh, is, is the voice crying out in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord? Or is he speaking of a voice crying out in the wilderness? Either way, what the, what the, the role of John the Baptist in doing that in the wilderness was that the Lord's wor- way might be prepared before him. Uh, in our text in verses 5 through 6, which are the last words of the Old Testament and God's final word for 400 years until the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of his son, this is what God tells his people in verses 5 through 6. He says, Behold, there's a word supposed to get our attention, right? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And what will he do? He and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, Elijah is said to to be uh, promised to come before the day of the Lord. And we know from the New Testament that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of those prophecies of John the Baptist, or of of Elijah rather, being sent. Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, verses 13 to 14, Jesus says this, in case we had any doubt. Jesus says, for all the prophets and the law, that's the whole Old Testament, right? Right? All the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and here it is, and if you are willing to accept it, he, John, is the Elijah who is to come. 
That's a pretty big deal because the Elijah who was to come was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one preparing the way of the Lord at the Lord's coming. And Jesus says, uh, if you're willing to accept it, John, he is the Elijah who was to come. And what does that tell you about who Jesus was? The Lord, the Messiah and the Lord himself. Now, what is the significance of this prophecy of John that we've seen at least three times in the Old Testament uh, in Isaiah's uh, book as well as twice here in Malachi? What's the significance of John the Baptist's coming? Um, that's what we hope to see here, uh, at least briefly in our text today. Uh, we're going to look at three things, Lord willing, from this short text. We're going to see one, the coming of Elijah and John the Baptist, what, what John the Baptist, how he is related to Elijah in this sense. Two, the coming of Elijah and the message of repentance. What was Elijah's message? It was largely in John the Baptist's day, one of repentance, as well as in Elijah's own day. And then third, the coming of Elijah and the warning of judgment. So the coming of, of Elijah and John the Baptist, the coming of Elijah and the message of repentance, and the coming of Elijah and the warning of judgment to come. So the first thing is the connection that we need to see between Elijah and John the Baptist, that Malachi's prophecy of the coming of Elijah, this coming back of Elijah, was actually fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist. John, in John chapter 1, verse 21 the priests and the Levites actually asked John if he was the one that was to come. They asked him if he was Elijah. And what, do you, and what did John say? John said, no. They said, are you Elijah? In other words, they're saying, are you this one that was to come right before the coming of the Messiah? Are you the one that was supposed to, was prophesied of in the Old Testament? They wouldn't have called it the Old Testament, of course. But they asked him if he was Elijah, and John said, no. And other people thought Jesus was Elijah. You know, they often asked him, are you the prophet, that, are you the prophet that's coming into the world? Uh, and they, they thought he might be Elijah, Mark 8.28 says. But in Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 to 14, as we just read, Jesus settles the matter once and for all. He says again, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he, John, is the Elijah who was to come. Now, there, there are, if you know the Gospels, if you've read them a number of times, there are not many details in the earthly life and ministry of Christ that are included in all four Gospels. You know, you, you can't just kind of lay them over top of each other and match them up. You know, very often you'll see, I think in Calvin's commentary and others, they have like a harmony of the Gospels. But they aren't the same thing told verbatim four times. You might wonder, why do we have four Gospels? Well, they're all, they're four different kind of angles or points of view on, on what Christ has done in his coming and his death and resurrection. But, they all, not many details of Christ's earthly life and ministry are found in all four Gospels. They're, for instance, you might think, well, if you don't, haven't read them, you think, well, of course, the birth narrative, is it in all four? No, it's only in two. It's only in Matthew and in Luke's Gospel, of all things. This doesn't mean it's not important, but it means some things might be a little bit more important. Well, you might not know, but John the Baptist is mentioned in all four Gospels, in some detail as well. He isn't just mentioned in passing. Uh, he is mentioned quite at length and sometimes in all four, all four of the Gospels. That alone should be enough to convince us that John the Baptist coming as Elijah was rather important on the scale uh, of, of, uh, history, of, of the history of redemption. Uh, John the Baptist, you might know, is such a noteworthy figure that he's even mentioned in secular history. You might know that Josephus, the late uh, the first century Jewish historian, has a book called The Antiquities of the Jews, 
And in that book, he actually mentions what the Bible talks about when Herod killed John the Baptist. He actually puts that in his history of John the Baptist being executed by Herod. So this is not some fable. This is not some uh, fairy tale. This actually happened. All of the scripture tells the truth about historical things. But even, even, even secular history knows of John the Baptist and mentions him by name. Now the Gospel of Mark, you might know, actually begins not with Jesus' birth, but with the account of the coming of John the Baptist. That's where, that's where Mark's Gospel begins. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, it says this. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, same place that Elijah was, right? And proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, he, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he's, he's telling everybody, I'm not the one that's, you know, I'm, I'm the one that goes ahead of him. I'm not the one you should be looking for, per se. Now, John's wardrobe, as strange as that may sound to our ears, uh, what was it, camel's hair and a leather belt, is very significant. There's a reason the scriptures put that detail there for us. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to think, well, that's just how people dressed back then. You know, the people in the first century were kind of like cavemen in my eyes. They had, you know, camel's hair, coats, leather belts. They looked like Fred Flintstone. They walked around with that kind of stuff. Well, that's not the case. In Jesus' day, was that normal attire? No, in fact, the people knew exactly what that meant. They knew exactly who that brought to mind. He dressed like Elijah. That's the whole point. John dressed the way Elijah and Elisha after him dressed. Because 2 Kings verse, uh, verse 8 of chapter 1, 2 Kings 1, 8, describes Elijah this way, as wearing, quote, a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. So there's no mistaking that for the student of Scripture, no mistaking that John, John the Baptist, was taking on the mantle of Elijah, even as Elisha had done after the Lord took Elijah up to heaven in chariots of fire. Second Kings chapter two, verses eight to fifteen says this. Second Kings two, eight to fifteen, it says, Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. Remember when you were in gym class, if you're a guy, you'd get your towel wet and smack you know the person in front of you with it and give him a welt. He did that to, to the Jordan River. He, he struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other. It was like parting of the Red Sea, right? Uh, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. Same kind of miracle God worked through Moses. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. He was told Elijah was going to be taken away. And he was very distressed about it. He did not want it to happen. Uh, and he says this, Elijah said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. In other words, don't blink. You know, if you blink and I'm gone, you know, that's, that's kind of the implication there. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven 
And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. Well, then what happened? It says, Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. So you see what's happening? The mantle, the cloak of Elijah, passed to Elisha, and the very same miracle Elijah did when they crossed over the one way, Elisha does it going the other way. He is taking on not just the cloak or the mantle, but the role of Elijah. And it says, Now when the, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha, and they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. So the, 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 the sons of the prophets of Jericho, we don't know if they saw him split the, the, the river, but I think they probably did. They saw that he was coming in the spirit uh, and power of Elijah. They got the hint by what he was wearing. It wasn't his clothing he was wearing. It was Elijah's, the same miracle that Elijah had done, Elisha had done. So even in the story of Elijah's mantle being passed on to Elisha, God's people, I think, were being prepared for the coming return of Elijah to not necessarily be that of Elijah himself, but rather that of somebody coming in the spirit of Elijah. So the, the whole story of the passing of the mantle, I think, was meant to be taken as a hint of what was to come. And I think that's exactly what Luke points out in his gospel. Luke chapter 1, verse 17, uh, there in his account, he explains that John came, quote, in the spirit and power of Elijah, much like Elijah had done after Elijah departed. No wonder the ministry of John the Baptist caused such a stir. I mean, you know, think about this. You know, we, sometimes I mean, when I was a kid and reading the Bible the first time, you read about these st the stories in the, in the gospel accounts of, what did it say? All of Jerusalem and all of Judea came out to the wilderness. You know, this wasn't like, you know, packing the, the minivan or the station wagon and go. This was a difficult trip. And who knows how many thousands of people were going out in the middle of nowhere. You know, you think the traffic going up to Julian after it snows is bad. This is probably worse. But, you know, they didn't just go out there to see nothing. They went out to see somebody they thought was the precursor and was the precursor to, to the coming of the Messiah. This was a big deal, even if they, even if they didn't really know exactly what that uh, entailed. Now, the most important thing is that the return of Elijah was a key part of the expectation of the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah. Malachi 4, verse 5 in our text says the coming of Elijah was to take place what? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So their expectation was the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah. And what had to happen first was Elijah had to be there. And so it's no wonder the people were so excited about John the Baptist coming out there. Even the Pharisees and scribes were curious, right? They went out and John warned them, who, who warned you to flee? What are you doing here? You know, you're part of the problem, so to speak. Well, the second thing we see in our text is the coming of Elijah and the message of repentance. The coming of Elijah in, in the person of John the Baptist and the, coming, the message of repentance. Um, you might know that, that the coming of Elijah, it, it involved by necessity, part of his message, part of his ministry was preaching that of repentance. If you were to try to sum up 
This is Bible quiz time. If you were to look at your Old Testament and read all the books of the prophets, major and minor prophets and Moses and whoever else, you know, uh, what, how would you summarize their message? might be kind of hard to do. But I, I will suggest to you, for your consideration, that you could basically sum up all of the message of all the prophets in the Old Testament in one word. Repent. It's more than that, but that was basically what their job was, to tell people to come and tell them to repent, to turn from their iniquities and turn back to God. The prophet's job, the prophet's main job throughout the Old Testament and the New, was to speak the word of God to his people. The message of the prophet was to use the old, old uh, King James language, was basically, thus saith the Lord. It wasn't the prophet's job to tell people their own ideas, their own opinions, uh, just like a pastor preaching. It's not, our job is not supposed to be to tell you our own opinions and whatnot. But a prophet was to speak forth the word of God and be the mouthpiece of God and say, thus saith the Lord. And that message of thus saith the Lord usually involves some message of a call to repentance and a warning of judgment to come. If that repentance wasn't forthcoming. We've seen this very same message earlier in the book of Malachi, as short as it was, back in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 7, we read this. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. And here it is. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And Sadly, they say, but you say, how shall we return? What do we have to repent of is what they said back. They talked back to God. But when he says, return to me and I will return to you, it's the same word that's commonly translated as repent or turn. He's telling them to repent. That if there was a distance between them and God, who's the one that moved? They moved. God didn't move. They did. And he tells them to repent or return. To repent is to turn or to return, you know, if I think about my, my Navy days, uh, don't ask me why they taught us to march, but they did. Never marched the day on a ship in my life. Uh, but one of the things you learned how to do was what was a move called about face. Right? You, and about face, I won't do it in front of you right now, but you turn, you turn on your heel and you do a 180. Let's, let's repent. Repent is a divine call to about face, to turn around and go the other direction, to go away from sin and to go back. To God. That is what repentance is, a turning from sin and turning back to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul, the Apostle Paul, speaks of this very thing in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 to 10. He's reminding the Thessalonians of their own testimony of, of conversion. He says, For they themselves, I think it's those in Macedonia, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Here it is. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Even in talking about his conversion, he mentions the wrath to come and fleeing from it. But he says, what did they do? They turned, they turned to God from idols. If idols are this way, God is this way. They were going this way and they turned around to serve the one true and living God. What was the ministry and message of the coming Elijah that, that Malachi talks about? What was his message supposed to be? What was the hallmark of his ministry from, from the word of the Lord? Malachi 4, 6 says this. He, this Elijah who was to come, he will what? He will turn 
the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Same word, turn, repent, return. Same exact Hebrew word. What was John the Baptist's message? Did it involve repentance? You, you probably know that it did. Mark 1, verse 4, it says that John came, quote, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins or the forgiveness of sins. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance. That baptism of John was meant to be a sign and seal of their repentance. It was an outward sign or symbol of their turning back to God and their need for new life by the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ also preached repentance, didn't he? He preached repentance later in the same chapter of Mark's Gospel, verses uh, verses 14 and 15 of Mark 1. It says that Jesus was, quote, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Here it is. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' message, the first message in scripture we have recorded from the lips of Christ himself was a message of repentance. The apostles also preached repentance. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 39. This is the day of Pentecost. And he's, he preaches that, that amazing first Christian sermon, so, so-called. And what does the crowd do? It says there in Acts 2, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And what did Peter tell them to do? It says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. And the apostles, Peter and the rest, also preached repentance. So this message of Elijah who was to come, the message of John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles, uh, an essential part of the gospel message The message of thus saith the Lord to sinners is a message of repentance. How often do we hear of the message of repentance in our churches? How often do you hear of repentance in reformed churches these days? It doesn't happen very often, sad to say. You know, our confession of faith, our doctrinal standard, subordinate standard to scripture, of course, but the confession of faith, chapter 15, part 1, says this. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace The doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. Every minister of the gospel is duty bound before the Lord to preach basically two things. Repentance and faith in Christ. And so wherever that message is is missing, something less than the gospel is being proclaimed. And the minister of that church is being unfaithful to Christ and his commission in the gospel. Those two things must be proclaimed by every minister of the gospel. The Shorter Catechism defines repentance unto life for us. I've always found this to be helpful, and so I repeat it any excuse I get, any chance I get. Uh, Shorter Catechism 87, this is what repentance unto life is. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin. Here it is. Turn from it unto God with a full purpose of 
and endeavor after new obedience. It's a saving grace, meaning it's something that God gives as part of conversion. He grants that we understand a right sense of our sin, a right grasp of the mercy that's held forth to us by God in Jesus Christ in the gospel. And with that, with grief and hatred of our sin, we turn from it unto God. How many don't hate their sin at all and never turn from it, but are assured somehow of that they're right with God? Do you hate your sin? Because Jesus saves sinners and he saves us from our sins. Now, repentance, don't misunderstand. Repentance does not earn you forgiveness. It does not earn forgiveness. It's not meritorious in any way. We are saved only by Christ through faith in him and his righteousness alone. But turning to Christ involves turning from sin. It's, you can't do one without the other. He saves us not only from the penalty of our sin. Jesus saves us from our sins, including its power as well as its penalty. Thomas Watson wouldn't be a sermon for me if I had a Thomas Watson quote. Um, he has a book, a great little book called The Doctrine of Repentance, and he says this. Repentance is a pure gospel grace. The covenant of works admitted no repentance. There it was, sin and die. Repentance came in by the gospel Christ has purchased in his blood that repenting sinners shall be saved. The law required personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. It cursed all those who would not come up to this. It said, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Galatians 3.10 It does not say that he obeys not all things, let him repent, but let him be cursed. Thus, repentance is a doctrine that has been brought to light only by the gospel. Without Jesus dying, repenting wasn't going to happen and wouldn't have done any good. It's only the fact that Jesus died and rose again that makes the offer of repentance worth anything and able to be done unto salvation. Without Christ, there can be no offer of repentance because the penalty had not been paid. Your repentance does not pay the price for your sins. Only the cross of Christ does that. Your repentance is not the righteousness that will enable you to stand before a holy God on the day of judgment. Only Jesus Christ's righteousness given to you by faith can do that. The Confession of Faith also says this, Although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction of sin or any cause of the pardon of it, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, here it is, Yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. We don't earn God's forgiveness by repenting, but nobody will be receiving God's forgiveness without repenting. That is, I think, the message of Scripture as well. Repentance itself does not save, but you will not be saved without it. Luke 13.3, the Lord Jesus Christ there said, Unless you repent, you will all likewise what? Perish. Remember they're saying, look, were these sinners over here worse than others because this happened to them? And he says, no, I tell you the truth. Quit worrying about them. I'm paraphrasing. Worry about you. Unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. And so I have to ask this morning, have you repented of your sin and believed on Christ for salvation? If you have not, turn to Christ and live. That's, that offer is opened up because Christ has died and risen again. Well, the third thing in our text is the coming of Elijah and the warning of the judgment that's to come. 
Um, you know, the, the last note left ringing in the ears of God's people for 400 years until the coming of Christ was a message of John the Baptist, a warning of that message that, that judgment was to come unless they repented. And this judgment was related to the coming of Christ in some way. Remember, it's spoken of as a day of the Lord in our text. Look again at verses 5 to 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet when? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now that that last phrase there, strike the land with a decree of utter destruction, it's difficult to translate. That's why you'll see it translated in various ways. But the word there is, is the Hebrew word karem. It's the same word that we translate as devoted to destruction in the book of Joshua. In other words, sometimes during the conquest of Canaan, not every time, but very often, God would tell Joshua and the people, like Jericho, for instance, when you go to this place, you don't take anything. You don't take any spoils. He wants the whole place destroyed. Men, women, children, animals, gold, everything has to go. Nothing is to be kept. It's a picture of of God's wrath upon a place. It's a picture of divine judgment, which is complete and total in its entirety and all that it does. And that same word is used here. That should be shocking. God is threatening the people in Israel with that. He's saying the same judgment that came upon Jericho and other places in the promised land for their wickedness is going to come upon this place unless you repent. Utter destruction. That's what was threatened. Now, the day of the Lord is described in our text as, verse 5, the great and awesome day. I think the word awesome there is probably better rendered as fearful. The King James puts it as the great and dreadful day. The New American Standard, I think, puts it well, too, puts it as the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The idea is fear is that it's fearful for those who have not repented. That's, it's something that would make your knees knock and make your legs tremble. Now, what judgment was Elijah coming to be a herald of 400 years after the day of Malachi? Certainly, he was the forerunner of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of the gospel in Christ. But his coming also was related to the coming uh, of Christ and was related to the looming judgment as well at the coming of Christ. We saw John's message was one of repentance, but it was also John also warned of the judgment that was to come. Matthew 3, verses 7 to 10, it says this. But when he, that's John, when he saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, very secret sensitive of John, you brood of vipers. He didn't say, oh, the important people are here. Come on, come to the front. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And then he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What are you really trying to say, John? He didn't pull any punches, did he? He told them exactly what they needed to hear. But what judgment was John warning of there? Now, certainly every warning of judgment in Scripture is in some way 
a warning of the final judgment on that last day when Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. But in this case, I think the primary judgment in view here, at least proximity-wise, proximity wise, is that which took place in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Roman armies. Like, there, there's not much that, that fits the description better of decree of utter destruction than what happened in A.D. 70 in Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus prophesied of, of the temple that not a single stone be left on top of another. That literally happened. It literally was fulfilled and took place. Even in John's day and in Jesus' day, the axe was laid at the root of the trees. Picture somebody chopping a tree down and they're sizing it up. They're kind of getting, you know, their practice swings. It's right at the root. The next thing that happens is the swing and the tree coming down. The judgment was right around the corner in John's day and in Jesus' day. And sadly, we know that the majority of the people of Israel, much like those in Malachi's day who had not changed, the majority refused to repent and judgment came. The very thing we see threatened, the last words of the Old Testament come true towards uh, late in the first century. Now, what does that mean for us today? Is this just a, you know, a trivial pursuit thing that we know, you know, we, we know an answer to a question, a trivia question? Um, we, too, are called to repent and turn back to God through faith in Christ. At Christ's returning glory, he will judge the living and the dead on that last day. And so Malachi's message for us is as relevant today as it has ever been. In his book, The Next to Last Word, Michael Barrett writes the following. He says, Malachi was the last of the post-exilic prophets, and his last word was a threatened curse. Not a happy way to end. And think about, that's the last word for 400 years. That's what was left ringing in the ears. Not a happy way to end, but thankfully his last word was not the last word. It was the next to last word. The last word was coming, Christ. God's supreme and final word was on the way. See Hebrews chapter 1. Remember Hebrews 1? God, in many ways, I'm paraphrasing, has spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, how has he spoken? He has spoken to us by his son. Matthew Henry also notes the following. He says that that day of Christ, when he came first, at Christ's first coming, that day of Christ, when he came first, was as that day will be when he comes again. Though a great and joyful day to those that embrace him, yet a great and dreadful day to those who oppose him. Same coming, far different results. To those of you who are in Christ by faith, his day of coming, his, his, his return, holds no dread. It is something that we look forward to with joy. A great and joyful day, as Matthew Henry said. To those who oppose him and resist him and refuse to, to turn to him by faith and repentance, it will be a great and dreadful day. I pray that the day of Christ's return is a great and joyful day for every one of you uh, because you have embraced Jesus Christ for salvation by faith alone. Let's, let's pray.